So it feels like this is a kind of a, a big Sunday for us because it, it turns out this is our one-year anniversary of worshiping together. Yay! And we're going to actually have an open mic time at, after communion today to just express gratitude and, and to pray prayers of thanksgiving together. So, you know, have that in your mind if, you, if you're up for speaking about it. Um, Let's see, church town hall meeting, family meeting. We're going to do that on September the 10th. And uh, we're going to do it in lieu of the regular worship service. So if you haven't got that on your calendar, please do. And then we, you saw hopefully in the email this week that we're going to start up uh, community groups for the fall shortly. I'll send out this week a survey to get your feedback on community groups and also to get your feedback on different outreach ways, ideas, ways that we can be more faithful and visible in our community because, I mean, let's be honest, not, nobody really knows that we're here, and so trying to think of how do we do that and it not be kind of icky and markety, but how we can do that and you know, be a blessing to other people. So I want to get your feedback on the ideas of adopt a college student, adopt a teacher, and fall festival that's coming up. All right, that's all that I have as far as community updates are concerned. And I didn't, I didn't have a passage this re- week to read in English and Spanish. Therefore, we'll jump right into the sermon. The average person spends uh, one-fifth of their life talking. You know, that's a, a, average. You know, some people more, <laughs> some people less. But the average is 20%. And so if you think about that, if all of our words in a given day were transcribed onto an eight, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, that works out to be about 50 normal pages a day or 350 pages a week, which is a decent sized book. And if the average person then puts out 52 books a year, and if they live to 80 years old, then at the end of their life, they'll look up at the bookshelf and there are literally 4,160 books that are filled like with your own words and i thought like just for you to stop for a moment and just picture it um every word that you have ever spoken on a bookshelf uh categorized by your age which book would you pull off and read first (laughs) right uh i thought i thought well i probably want to see my childhood because i can't remember much of it as bad as my memory is i'd want to go back and see what was on my mind when I was a kid and laugh, laugh no doubt at the naivete of my perspectives back then. Um, but I think, you know, that's the irony about uh, aging is that you can go back and laugh at the naivete of you 20 years ago and that the year, the you that was, you know, 20 years before that. It's like we're always sort of chuckling at, oh, I can't believe who I was back then. Um, A second thing that I would want to read about are conversations with loved ones, especially loved ones who aren't here any longer, like my mom and my grandparents and my uncles and aunts and and friends. I'd want to see what was it, what did I speak to them? And then thirdly, I thought I probably would want to go back and read the fights that I've been in. (laughs) And did I fight fair? Did I fight uh, reasonably? What I'm sure for any of us is that our words, were we able to go back and read them, would surprise us, right? We would, there would be things that we would hear ourselves say that we were like, I didn't, I didn't remember saying that, or I, I didn't think I said that when we actually did. And then 
I think there would be words like positively that, oh, man, I'm, that I really, I sort of came through in that moment. We would be pleasantly surprised, and then we would also be horrified. <laughs> you know, the books would be both magnificent and, and horrifying um, because with the, you know, the power of the tongue is, is life and death. I would want to see patterns and trends that might be present in my speech. Well, all that to introduce the section of the letter that we are in in 1 Corinthians. We're doing a sermon series through this letter, and uh, Paul is in this section addressing divisions in the church. He'll go on to address other issues like sex and uh, food and worship and the resurrection. But here, uh, he's addressing the divisions, and it seems like a number of the people in the church had attached themselves to their favorite Christian leader and were disrespecting others who followed other leaders. And and they were especially interested, we think, in the leader's use of rhetoric, their preferred speaking method. And so I thought it would be good to introduce this section and to hear how Paul characterizes his words and his manner of speaking to the church, because he clearly, uh, demonstrably rejects the methods of popular, of the popular speakers in his day, which I think is really ins- instructive. Um, so here we are, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 16. <clears throat> when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you uh, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a, a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would, have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 64, as it is written, what no eye has seen No ear has heard and no human heart has conceived. God is prepared for these things for those who love him. Now, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit within him? And in the same way, well, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received uh, the spirit of the world, but the spirit of, who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Uh, but the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because, because it, it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. And then here he quotes Isaiah 40. For uh, who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray again. The Spirit of God, who has inspired these words, Make them come alive to us, instruct us, and show us 
the path of wisdom that Paul speaks about here, and, um, you know, transform our minds so that we increasingly are living and operating by the very thing he just said, the, the mind of Christ. Help us to think and to speak, Lord, more and more like the Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'll admit my uh, section headings this week, they're not very good titles, but number one, we're going to look at Paul's word about words. And we'll do it by asking this question. Was there anything problematic about the use of rhetoric in their day? Was there anything especially uh, objectionable about the way uh, uh, public personalities and speakers, you know, went about things? And the answer, as you might have guessed, is yes. According to the best scholarly works on 1 Corinthians, it seems there was something common uh, among those who are skilled in the art of rhetoric, and they had these, at least, these five characteristics. Number one, that these speakers would speak confidently and pompously of themselves. Number two, that they would never ever admit to wrongdoing or weakness. Number three, that they would caricature, belittle, and mock their opponents. Four, play to their audience's fears and prejudices. And then finally, five, rely on their own credentials, their own sophistication, their appearance, their shows of intelligence in order to gain a following rather than on substantial proposals and arguments. I, right, well, I mean, it sounds, it sounds a whole like, a lot like American political discourse today, doesn't it? Like right, right out of our playbook, the, the pompous, demeaning way that political leaders speak um, or I spend a lot of time, probably too much time, I've told you, on Twitter, but I read a lot on Twitter. And, like, that's the way that people speak to each other on Twitter. It's the way people speak to each other on message boards. Like, you can really see humanity truly at its worst when we can hide behind the cloak of anonymity. What's wild, though, about that list, I mean, it sounds so 21st century, but what is wild about that list is the guy who wrote it, who's Thistleton, is a brilliant um, New Testament scholar. He made that list as he was studying ancient rhetoric um, in 2013. It's not like he was doing this, you know, post-Trump, post No, he, he was making that list way back then, you know, and examining the Greco-Roman rhetorical t- techniques. All that to say, some things never change. Like, this is, this type of brazen speech has, it's been this way for as long as there have been people. I am thankful that the Apostle Paul, you know, this emissary of Christianity, is a man who said, I refuse to play those games. I refuse to speak to people this way. I did not come to you with that kind of speaking style. That style may be, it is highly effective in getting donations and getting votes and getting followers. It works. And that type of speaking style is highly effective in getting likes and maybe even in getting your way, but it doesn't advance God's way, according to Paul. What does? Like, what is the style? What is the affect that really affects, like, brings about God's way? And he says, it's, it's weakness. <laughs> you know, he says, I came to you in weakness. It's vulnerability. He says, I came to you in much fear and trembling. He says, it's inadequacy. Like, I didn't feel capable <laughs> of the, the task that I was called to, which there's a long history in the Bible of men and women not feeling capable uh, not as public speakers. Jeremiah comes to mind. Moses comes to mind. But he's like, I, 
That, I just know that I, I don't got it. Not in that way. He came to them, especially in a spirit of humility and a spirit of love. And I'll tell you why this is so important at a community level. Um, we say, we do believe that Christ, churches are supposed to be communities of truth, right? That any community that says we have the truth in a unique way, we know God's story, uh, God has revealed some things to us that he hasn't revealed to everybody. Anybody who claims that, surely you realize how easy it is for that kind of truth to become oppressive. <laughs> you know, um, that can be a tool of oppression, that type of truth, unless it is, you know, unless it comes with the fruit of love, the fruit of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and, and gentleness, and, and humility. I'll tell you another reason why I think this is important and kind of revolutionary. The word humility is extremely important for understanding how Christianity changed the Greco-Roman shame and honor culture. Like in their world, in their world, humility, that word was almost always a negative. It was a word that always meant low and defeated. Whereas in the Bible, the word humility is used like over 200 times. And generally it's used, of course, as a virtue. Like humility, I saw one... um, guy who's commenting this week on the book of Philippians, he wrote this, that humility is a disposition especially characterized by kindness and grace towards others. Like, and the, the humble, the humble person is clothed with compassion and kindness and meekness and patience. And the humble are too busy trying to better the lives of others that they don't have, a, you know, enough time on their hands to brag um, or, or to get in fights or to, you know, do the whole machismo, bravado thing. Humility was not on the virtue list for the ancient uh, Greeks and Romans. And so Paul's audience, when they hear him saying, like, I came to you in weakness and humility, most likely they were like, what, what? That's, weakness is not a good thing. It's not a good thing to be weak and defeated in a shame and honor culture. The only way it's a good thing is if your message is ultimately about, you know, a man who was crucified, (laughs) you know? Um, That's where it's a good thing. If our message is fundamentally about a crucified Christ, we talked about last week how radical it was for Paul to say, I determined to know nothing among you except this one thing, the one thing that everybody in the society would hear and say, that's ludicrous, that is insane, Christ crucified, um, I just believe, I believe really strongly that if Christ crucified is our message, then um, our methods and the way we package it, it needs to sound and look kind of like that. (laughs) You know, the method of delivery should be consistent with uh, the message. Many popular public figures today, um, they're skilled in boasting. They're skilled in um, braggadocio, but they're not skilled in love, and they're not skilled in humility. And I get it. Like, most of us, we don't think of ourselves as public speakers, um, and we don't want to sign up for that job. But, and, and I know when I try to get you to come and either pray or lead portions of the service, how many of you are like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. But to think about in your own experience, isn't it true when you have a speaker or a counselor or a friend who is not all that put together in their presentation, um, and maybe they just come across, across as like, oh, kind of inadequate. Um, but 
but they are filled with love and they're filled with humility and they're just transparent. Like oftentimes, that kind of presentation is going to do a million times better of a job of presenting the gospel, presenting a crucified Savior to a listener better than like this really polished, put-together, expert-level take on things. Isn't it true? There's just something about simplicity of, of the message. The other thing that I think I, I want to point out about Paul's words on words, before we move on, here in verse 4, he says, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom. Obviously, Paul was a man who was skilled in rhetoric, and that the whole letter is itself an exercise in rhetoric. But it wasn't, he wasn't using the rhetoric of the day in the ways that I listed in 1 through 5. Um, but he did say this, one other thing, that there was something else that, that characterized his, his ministry to the Corinthians, and it's this, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Any idea what that may be in reference to? Probably healings. Like, like most likely, you know, Paul, he was not a good preacher. He was a good letter writer, but he would somehow have the power um, to come upon a man or a woman and say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, you know, be healed. And they were. And the great power of that is that then he was pointing away from himself to the name of Jesus. And, you know, he didn't package himself as the center of attention. He was happy to point away to the spirit of the crucified Jesus. Um, it's kind of like if you see great architectural lighting on a building, um, you, you wouldn't say, wow, what great lights. You say, wow, what, what a building at night. And that seems to characterize sort of his whole manner of presentation. Um, so that's number one. Number two, did, Paul's mysterious word. Did you catch how he references several times this word mystery? He does so in verse 1 and verse 7. And by that, you know, he's not talking about, um, you know, Scooby-Doo, murder mystery. It's a different use of the word mystery. And it, it kind of like this. You know how somebody can, they can spend their whole life studying biology, knowing human genetics. They can you know, be an expert, a, a doctor. Uh, 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 they know fertilization. They know reproduction. They know, the, they know it all. But there is something like deeply mysterious when you look into the eyes of your newborn child and you say, whoa, it's you. <laughs> you know, you can, you can know all about the, the science of it, but when, when you see them, when you see them face to face, it, Whoa, it's you. It's similarly, like a physicist, a physicist can explain the physics behind instruments and sound waves, but when you hear a special piece of music that just starts strumming your hearts, it's mysterious how that art can touch you. And so, you know, throughout human history, the deepest mysteries of human life, um, love and death and joy and beauty, have for millennia been believed to point to the deepest mystery of them all, which is the mystery of God. Aristotle said that contemplation of God was the highest thing that a, a man or a woman could do in this life. And so the mystery then that Paul is speaking about here is simply that Jesus of Nazareth, he unlocks like all the secrets. Um, he, he, is, he is the mystery unveiled. And while that for us who have been Christians for a while may seem anticlimactic, like what a shock for them. 
that God's, that God, that the maker of this vast universe, last week we looked at the picture of the Andromeda galaxy, right? And there was just light everywhere. And like whoever made that is all of his past, his present, and his future have all been unveiled in the face of this Jewish carpenter that through this Messiah, who would have ever thought that you would look for the secret of life there? Who would have ever thought that you would look for the secret of the universe, the secret of God, the secret of beauty, the secret of love, the secret of life after death, that it could be found in a place of execution outside of the city of Jerusalem? Like, that is a shocking claim, that there is the the hidden wisdom of God, there it's made known. And so verse 6 is kind of an important one. Um, Here he basically makes a distinction that he'll return throughout the letter. Verse 6, he says, We we do speak a a wisdom among the mature. So he's saying, you know, you have to have a certain level of maturity to appreciate the wisdom I'm giving you. But it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. And so essentially what he does is he divides all of human history into two ages. We would call these the present age, the present period of history that's characterized by human rebellion, sin, despair, and death, and versus the age to come, the, the time when the one true God will be king over all the world and bring um, to an end the rule of all forces that oppose to him. Uh, and so the idea is that, yeah, the the present age versus the age to come, but in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, pre- the, fu- the age to come has, has cascaded back into the present age. It's tidal waved back into us, uh, into this moment, and serves as the decisive break. Why, is it, why does this matter? Well, because he's going to say, I want you to live according to the wisdom of, of the age to come. Uh, I want you to, to enculturate the, the social economy, if you will, of the new creation, of all that is to come, um, and not live by the wisdom of this present age. Um, one guy that I follow on Twitter is a Korean, Korean pastor who is uh, in a church in D.C., and um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the church, but we listened to some of their music. Um, oh, how am I dropping it? In any case, uh, Duquan is his name. And, you know, in our circles, we, we talk a lot about gospel-centered. You know, we want gospel-centered churches, gospel-centered readings. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to unpack that, but it, it certainly means that Jesus Christ is at the, the center of it, his life, death, and resurrection. But Duke uh, uh, said, he said, you know what? Gospel-centered also has to mean something more than just, just Jesus. Like, it means that there's a community patterned after the social order of the new creation in its approach to wealth, power, sex, and ethnicity. Like a faithful sign and foretaste of the, the age to come, like somehow you know, being signified and, and tasted a little bit in the here and now. And that's, their, that was, that's the vision of church. That's the vision of Christian community. Uh, 
a patterning after the social order of the new creation in its approach to wealth, power, sex, and ethnicity. That just stood out to me. I don't know if that's too many words for you, but that really, that really got me. Notice also what Paul says about this wisdom in verse 8. He writes, none of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom. Now, who are the rulers of, of this age? Well, they're clearly political powers, actual governments, the actual governments that conspired to put Jesus on the cross. Like, I probably should one day try and preach a, 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 politi- a sermon on politics and, and how we're to view the state, but I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a little look into my hand. All government, precisely because it wields tremendous power of life and death, um, all government will metastasize into evil. Every government, every political party, every right and every left and every social order will um, undermine the truth and deny justice of people made in the image of God. And the wisdom of the rulers of this age, it would seem to me, is always going to be contrary to and belligerent to the, the wisdom of the kingdom. I mean, here you had the highest religion in the world, which was Judaism, and arguably the greatest government the world had ever seen, which was the Roman Empire. And what do they do? They get together to murder, Paul says, murder the, the Lord of glory. Like, if that doesn't give us a pretty good indicator of, of what we should think about all forms of political power, I don't know what else does. The real challenge, you know, is, though, it, it's just the challenge for us to, like, live by the wisdom of that age, to listen to the music of, of that age, not of this age. You know, this um, video went viral a while back. It's in a metro subway station in Washington, D.C., rush hour on a Friday morning. This was a few years ago, so you may have already even forgotten of it, but uh, the video is taken from an undercover um, camera, and, you know, people are... It's rush hour at D.C. They're frantically rushing through the doors um, of the subway station on their way to work. And to the side stands this ordinary street busker, and he's got his, his violin, he's wearing his T-shirt and his baseball cap, and he's, he's busking um, for pay. What people don't realize is, you know, the joke's on you, is that's none other than um, Joshua Bell. And that literally Bell, I think it was either the night before or two nights before that, he basically played, uh, you know, Symphony Hall in D.C. The same music that he was playing in the subway, he, he played on the stage in front of you know, thousands of people. The instrument that he's playing right there, it's no ordinary violin. It's a like, multi-million dollar Stradivarius, four million dollars, and yeah, six classical pieces he played, I'm sorry, okay, before a standing room audience at the Library of Congress. Washington Post did this, uh, and um, how many people do you think stopped to listen to Bell play? It was seven. Of the 1,097 people caught on video, seven stopped to listen, and, and only one of them stopped to listen for longer than three minutes and it happened to be a lady who was at the concert the night before and recognized him under his ball cap. And she said, I saw you at the Library of Congress. It was fantastic. And then she says, rather awkwardly, 
This is one of those things that can only happen in D.C. <laughs> like, how, how do we slow down enough, um, be quiet enough to, to listen to the, the music, to listen to the wisdom of the age to come? And the, the connection that Paul ends up making is that you've, it happens through God's Spirit. So, number three, the Spirit's mind and the Spirit's words. And this is another major theme of the letter that gets introduced here for the first time. Um, Paul relishes the fact that the Spirit that's poured out upon Christians, the Spirit that brings us to faith and, and opens our hearts and minds to the wisdom of the age to come, is is actually God's own spirit. It's not some lesser divine being. It's the spirit of God. And he, he puts it so cool in verses 11 and 12. This is a different translation, but I like it. Uh, think of it this way. Who knows what is really going on inside a person except the spirit of the person which is inside them? Well, it's like that with God. Nobody knows what is going on inside God except God's spirit. And we... That's all of us. We haven't received the spirit of the world, but the spirit that comes from God so that we can know the things that have been given to us by God. That, too, is obviously an astonishing claim. Now, he clearly doesn't mean that we have the spirit and therefore we automatically know everything. (laughs) You know, clearly not. I mean, why would he bother to write letters? But what it does mean is that if you choose to listen and pursue it, you actually do have access to God's mind. Or as he spoke about it in verse 16, you have access to the mind of the Messiah, the mind of Christ. We have the opportunity to think like him and, you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks to, to maybe increasingly speak like him. But he says, in order to go anywhere near this, Uh, We have to be, verse 6, in some sense, mature. We have to be, in in some important sense, spiritual and not worldly. And by that, of course, he's not talking about, like, uh, this idea that we're, like, super Christian. But he's talking about, I think, something along the lines of, you know, you're the kind of person who stops in the subway and and pays attention and listens. Okay, let me say one very practical thing here before moving to the final point. Something about our words. Um, You know, nowadays we might leave an angry voicemail, or nowadays we may uh, have our fights, but we have them over text messaging. And we all do it. (laughs) We all do it. The uncomfortable part about that is afterwards, there are receipts. You can see exactly what was said, exactly what was recorded, Do you ever go back and and read and ask this question? Did those words come from the Spirit? Like, did what I say there, was that that the Messiah talking through me? Was Was that, would that be characterized as something according to the Spirit of the age to come and the new creation? Or, you know, if I pulled that book off the shelf, um, would, would I recognize Jesus in it at all? And, you know, what I hope is that simply the Spirit will open our minds up to this truth, that oftentimes we speak out of our anger, and we uh, justify ourselves by our angry words, and, uh, or our manipulative words, or our lying words. We're, we're blind to that fact about ourselves, 
And what we need, what we desperately need, is the gift of the Spirit, the gift of the age to come, to, to just sort of show us, hey, this, I want something better for you. Like, I, I, I want to give you something better than this. And I don't know, the way of the Spirit is very mysterious. I mean, he's described as like he's the wind, that he blows here and there, and you never know when he's going to show up. And, and you can do the same thing, the same thing wrong, time after time after time again, and then all of a sudden, like suddenly the light goes on, and you see, you see that, yeah, you know, you see something about your heart, and, and you see that, oh, God wants to, to take me in a new place, to new depths and new dimensions of truth, of love, and uh, of humility. So we have the mind of Christ. Number four, and finally, I, I need to close with Isaiah's hopeful words uh, in despair. I don't know how many of you have read Stephen King's like magnum opus, his A Dark Tower. It's not a trilogy. It's a, how do you say, Eight, eight books in a series. Is that an elegy? <laughs> a trilogy? I, I don't know, but I haven't read it. I know that many people consider it to be his greatest work. Um, and I'm told at the very end of book eight, so think of how many words have preceded this. It gets to the last uh, few paragraphs of the final book, book eight. And um, the story stops. And I'm going to let you read somebody's review of this. She writes, When I finally had the last book in my hands, I started reading as fast as my eyes could move. I was hell-bent on finishing it, so much so that as Roland entered the Dark Tower on page 802, I, I love how she says this, I turned the page so hard I almost ripped it. And then I came upon the most remarkable thing, and the most remarkable thing is that see, Stephen King stops the story right there and, it, and starts talking to the reader as the author himself. And it's almost like, as if he closes the book. He was like reading it out loud and he closes the book and he peers out over his glasses and he says, okay, um, I feel all right ending the story right here. Like, we don't have to go any further. I'm, very, I'm comfortable stopping uh, the, the story right at this moment. Are you sure you want to go to the end? And he goes on. Because an ending, you, you only have to turn the last page and see what is writ, there writ upon. But endings are heartless. An ending is a closed door no man can open. And so I, I tell you this, you can stop here. Should you go on, you will surely be disappointed, perhaps even heartbroken. There is no such thing as a happy ending. Endings are heartless. Ending is just another word for goodbye. He's on to something there, isn't he? That endings can so often be like disappointing. Um, you know, and I think one of our great fears as human beings is that the everyday despair that we go through um, is real and it will actually end that way. <laughs> um, it certainly can feel like it in the drudgery of this life that, I mean, sometimes in our depression, it'll speak to us and say, it's never going to get better. It's always going to be dark. It's always going to be dark until that little bit, just that tiny little bit of light that you have is, is finally extinguished. Um, do you feel that way? Some, I feel that way. 
mean, the fact of the matter is, we are all hurting every day, and, and we all feel overwhelmed, and we're frequently despairing. And so how do you get up every day, and, and you know, how do you face living when, how do you face living when your marriage is unraveling, or how do you face living when you're growing older, and your body is just breaking down, and you're losing everything? How, how do you go on when, you know, the struggle with depression is unrelenting, or your teenagers are incorrigible, or like, where do you find that inner voice that gives you courage and that gives you strength? And I think one of the places is in verse 9. It's this promise. Isaiah said it centuries before. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. You know, the, those who love him, that's just the language of, of Old Testament Israel, that, that these are the people who uh, love me. And he's taking Israel's story and he's saying it's, it's our story. When no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart is conceived, God has prepared for those who love him. And of course, we see it in Jesus. We see the death-breaking resurrection power of God in Jesus. It's the same stuff that raised Jesus from the dead when death itself, death with all of its fury and, and all of its power and all of its inevitable strength tried to you know, bind Jesus up. And Jesus, he breaks the power of the bands like a thread. You know, I just find it so fascinating that Paul says this isn't an, a new message. The gospel is old. It goes back to Isaiah. <laughs> The promise goes all the way back that the death, decay, the destructive emotions and habits, the addictions, the confusions, the brokenness will all be overcome. It, every bit of it will be overcome by the death-breaking power of the resurrection. So much so that the end will be incomprehensibly greater than you could possibly begin to imagine even this day. I don't know. I, I can imagine a pretty cool end. <laughs> Can't you? Like, I have a decent imagination. I, I can Im- imagine a really good end. He says, there's, it's going to be so much greater. You can't, you, won't, you don't even touch the surface of it. You know, that's the word that he gives to us struggling Christians then and struggling, you know, Christians today. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That's it. And so when you have that inner voice with all its condemnation and all its denunciation, um, the way you need to respond to it is what God has in store for all of creation is death-breaking power. And you know, when you get to book number 4,160 on your shelf, like the basically the very last word that you will speak as, as a Christian, is I had no idea it would be this good. Amen.